that triathlon show 261. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Kevin Poulton. Kevin is a world tour level cycling coach who has worked with top cyclists like Caleb Buen, Alex Dowsett and Matt Heyman. He's also a former employee of Swift and is incredibly knowledgeable in how to effectively incorporate indoor cycling in a training program for professionals and amateurs alike. We'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. This week is Black Friday week, so Precision Hydration is running a special deals on their electrolyte supplements. You can get 20% off all your electrolyte supplements with the code TTSFRIDAY20. And if you order for more than 100 US dollars, then you also get a free microfiber towel. This deal is in place all the way through midnight on Cyber Monday next week on the 30th of November. Do take their free online sweat test that you can find on their website under free hydration plan. That will tell you, give you a good ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat. So you can match the electrolytes that you buy to your individual sweat sodium concentration. And big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka is running their holiday sales through the 1st of December. And you can find that on roka.com. There will be a lot of product products on offer there uh, from all the different product categories like wetsuits, trisuits, swimskin goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Roka has a bunch of different product lines and all of the products are really top, top quality. Of course, the normal code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS is still in effect, so you can get 20% off all your order with that code. But uh, please be aware that that's for non-sale item only. You can't combine that code with items that are on sale. But either way, since there are both plenty of sale items and there is also the usual 20% off code, there should be plenty of opportunities for you to to find some really good deals. Uh, well, there is always an opportunity with the code, of course. Uh, but uh, now with Christmas approaching, perhaps this is a good time to get some uh, triathlon-related gifts to your friends, family, and loved ones. So uh, perhaps go and do some Christmas shopping this week or all the way through the 1st of December. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Kevin Poulton. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Kevin. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. Nice to be here. It's uh, very nice to have you, uh, a topic that uh, this time of year is uh, very much uh, uh, on the agenda with indoor training being the primary thing we'll discuss. But uh, before we get into all that, can you introduce yourself to the audience and uh, tell us a bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, my name's Kevin Poulton. Uh, I've been coaching, and I did the maths here earlier. It's coming up to around 25 years now. So uh, starting to, to feel a bit older, but uh, I guess with that comes experience. Uh, and look, uh, I've been very fortunate to coach at a world tour level for a number of years uh, with head coach at Katusha, working with riders like Marcel Kittle, Alex Dowsett, 
um, had success with many Australian riders such as Matt Heyman in Paris-Roubaix and there's the whole story of how Matt trained indoors to win Roubaix and riders like Caleb Ewan uh, and Mitch Docker. So a lot of uh, experience coaching and I guess in the last five years we've really seen a, a shift in the technology that's come into training and the way coaches have used it as well. So, yeah, very fortunate to be uh, coaching at a world tour level and also um, part of the the um, implementation of indoor training as well. Yeah, so uh, let's just mention, if you want to mention that uh, you are working with uh, some indoor training platforms as well, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, I'm working with an indoor training platform called Whoosh, W-H-O-O-S-H. Uh, it's coming out of the Middle East. It hasn't quite been released yet. Uh, look, before that, I spent a number of years with Zwift and, and loved every moment there. Um, and what they've produced is fantastic. But uh, just to give you the full background picture, I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to lead the development of a, a new indoor platform. So to have someone say, come and uh, produce indoor training how you think it could be and should be was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So very grateful for, for Zwift and everything they did for me, uh, but took up opportunity to lead a new platform. Yeah, uh, that sounds very, very exciting indeed. Before we talk specifically about indoor training, uh, could you give us an overview of your main coaching and training principles? Yeah, so that's a that's a broad question, that one. Um, yeah, I guess, look, working with World Tour athletes, my main aim is to set them up for an entire season. So I guess whereas triathletes are sometimes training for one or two races and generally have a, a long build-up period of uh, 16 or 20 weeks to a race, we really only have uh, a period of 10 weeks to set us up for a season ahead. So the training is is different there. And and thinking about that, what I'm really trying to do with the athletes early in the season is make them as aerobically efficient as, as we can so they're uh, preserving their glycogen stores, whether they be a classics rider, a sprinter or a climber. So for me, that early season training is really about focusing on the different um, training systems, energy systems. And then once we get into the season, we're then training for the, for the, the demands of racing. So um, what, what we're seeing now too is that with our professional riders, in the past they were having uh, maybe two peaks throughout the season. But now someone like a sprinter, they're really having five or six peaks throughout a season. Um, and obviously – different demands of racing there so as for a grand tour rider a gc guy they're going to have probably two peaks in their season but for our sprinter they really they they gain their fitness early in the season they gain their endurance uh their leg speed and they really skip along from race to race and just recover and ramp up to the next race recover ramp up to the next one as well so i guess that's a really broad way to to explain how we approach for professional riders um but I guess one of the, the biggest things that we've put in place in training in recent years is indoor training, but with that comes heat manipulation as well. And this is probably something to discuss a little bit further on in the in the interview, but we're really playing around with um, the effects of, of heat adaptation and the benefits of that as well, along with dietary manipulation as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a broad question there, um, but I guess the difference between the triathletes and the professional road cyclists is that 
we're preparing them for the season ahead rather than just one specific race. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a couple of follow-up questions. When you are in the competitive phase, the racing part of the season, what might that typically look like when races are coming thick and fast? Do you simply, so you mentioned there, recover, build up, recover, build up, but quite often the, the races might be like very close to each other. So so how much do the races actually form the training and then it's just managing the load and not doing that much in training uh, in terms of intensity, specific work, and, and how much actual hard training do you do intense training do you do between races in in those scenarios yeah so again to be very specific in terms of the rider so um i'm fortunate enough to work mainly with the classics riders and the pure sprinters so like the the caleb ewans and, and the matt Heymans, those guys um for our classics guys obviously they have their period of racing which is between four and six weeks of their their peak period of, of racing in terms of the classics of flanders roubaix um, get Wevergum, those sort of races as well. So leading up to that period, and this is what we found with uh, Matt Hayman's experience too of being forced not to race leading into a key racing period. Um, freshness and recovery is just obviously hugely important. We know that. But now um, what we're doing now as opposed to, say, six years ago, we really are training less during this racing period. So the guys have a midweek semi-classic. On the weekend they have one of the major monuments and then the same again for the week after from there. So it really is about getting them to that uh, peak fitness period uh, in the best form and, and the main thing is is healthy. And then it really is uh, hitting the races, doing the best they can, good recovery, one major hit out before the next race and recovery again. So you never want to say that uh, your work is easy but, I certainly do enjoy the racing period because uh, in terms of programming, it really is a lot of recovery and rest days. Mm. And, and in the preparation phase uh, leading up to, to the racing season, you mentioned they're focusing on aerobic work, but you also mentioned working all the en- the different energy systems. So uh, can you just elaborate a little bit, perhaps by just giving a typical example, training week, how much is aerobic training and how much of that is super easy, how much is more like, high-end aerobic how much tempo work and and high intensity intervals and and so on yeah sure so again to use in my experience the the classic rider versus the sprinter um in terms of volume the sprinter is is much less than the classics rider because we know that for my pure sprinter for the caleb ewan he hits his peak five second power in january in australia but he has no endurance then so after that the goal really is to find some endurance but maintain that that peak five-second power as well. And that's the same with any sprinter. They're always at their best when they have the least amount of endurance and there's that trade-off of endurance and, and keeping the power as well. So for someone like Caleb, it really is the training is uh, very low intensity or it's very high. We avoid all that medium tempo type stuff. We avoid strength endurance work of the, the high crank torque for long periods of time because that um, affects his sprint, it deadens his sprint. But whereas for the classics riders leading into their peak racing period, it's lots of tempo work, 40-minute efforts with surges involved in it as well, huge amount of volume, but also good recovery as well. So just to be clear on that, for our, for our sprinter, um, the low-intensity training, they go super long. They might do six, seven hours at zone two, very easy. 
And then the anaerobic work is always very high intensity but with good recovery as well, whereas a classic guy, they want to build that fatigue, they want to build that resilience to, to be able to um, perform under, under fatigue um, and lots of tempo work, lots of threshold work. They really are the jack of all trades, the, the classics riders, and they probably are the most difficult to train, whereas uh, the GC guy, the climber, lots of climbing, lots of strength work, lots of endurance, the sprinter, easy, lots of sprints. The classic rider has to be good at everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's move into indoor cycling uh, a little bit. So maybe, I don't know, you and you can correct me on the order of these questions if you want to, because you, I'm sure you have a pretty logical setup of explaining your thoughts around indoor training. But what I'm thinking is maybe we can start by discussing, discussing simply equipment and, and setup. So what, uh, what's your opinion around that? Well, Look, I guess the first point here is that uh, setup can be expensive, and but the better your setup, the more inclined you are to use it. So things like having um, a bike specifically for indoor training, where you're not taking your road bike on and off to use it all the time. If your if your uh, indoor training setup is there, ready to ride when you need it, you walk down to the garage and it's raining. You want to ride indoors, and the bike's there. You're more likely to use it. So if you can have a standalone setup, that's the ideal situation. Definitely smart trainer uh, for just for the accuracy and the engagement in, in the workouts. Um, there's lots of – it. really it's all about motivating yourself and um, engaged in the training and, and things like uh, the, the Wahoo climber just to change the gradient of the bike indoors as well. Those kind of things make it more engaging and, and more fun. Um, having uh, a good fan to keep yourself cool, which we'll talk about later on, actually, um, things like that. So, if you can have, you know, we call them man caves in Australia. I don't know what they're called around the world, but if you can have a, a good training environment, you're more likely to use it. Yeah, and I've, I guess that's also where the different software options come into play because they will make it a bit more enjoyable, a bit more entertaining, and make you more likely to to do the. The training when you have something that that helps add some engagement to to the training rather than just staring at your by computer yeah well, i guess look the, the point there is that indoor training has been around forever we all know that and we've always known that it's been beneficial and effective but now we have this system where it is motivating and fun and engaging and social so we're more likely to use it now and with that we're learning um how to benefit from that how to fit it into uh other training but also for me, the critical point is that indoor training complements your outdoor riding. It's not here to overtake indoor-outdoor training. It's here to allow you to train more effectively, more scientifically, more accurately, and that's going to benefit your performance outdoors. Yeah, yeah. And of course, for a lot of people, indoor training may be the only way to train effectively, at least during a a busy week with uh, not a lot of time available and uh, during winter uh, shorter days etc climate not being uh, conducive for outdoor riding but if we have a hy- hypothetical scenario where you have the choice between let's say uh, for you guys in australia for example at least in, in parts of, of australia you have the luxury of being able to ride outdoors uh, year round in and it, it's all good weather uh, for, as far as i understand at least in, in the sunshine coast and so on uh, but if you have the choice between a good outdoor riding with all the terrain you need to be specific in in training outdoors but you also have the indoor training options uh, what would your recommendations be in terms of 
distributing training between indoor and outdoor riding or is is there any reason to do indoor training if you have a really good place to do outdoor riding year round yeah absolutely uh and this is where indoor training is in some ways misunderstood at the moment so for me the best example is that in some of the training camps that i've run around the world we go to places like andorra or lake tahoe beautiful places for riding outdoors the weather's nice the climbs are nice the roads are roads are quiet everything you've described there but the gains that we can achieve by implementing indoor training in those environments are huge. As an example, uh, for my riders uh, leading into Grand Tours, three-week stage races, we've had training camps up in Andorra. We've implemented indoor training three or four times a week leading into a Grand Tour. Um, we've done things like double-day sessions, and we do these blocks of indoor riding at our outdoor camps and we finished the, the last indoor session 10 days from the start of a Grand Tour and, and the guys are coming out of it with phenomenal form. Uh, and, and the main thing here is that one of the most interesting things is that uh, the, the increase in, in blood plasma, the increase in VO2 that they're achieving by implementing indoor training, it just it can't be questioned. Uh, the gains are there. And I guess to give a, uh, is a that is that Is that, are you alluding to the heat adaptation effects there? Yeah, this, this is the big conversation here and talking about heat. Um, look, what we've found, and this all comes back from the Matt Heyman experience. So like everyone else, before uh, Roubaix in 2016, I had used indoor training sporadically, uh, was aware of it, uh, but never really implemented it unless we were forced to, whether through injury or bad weather. So in 2016, coaching Matt Heyman, the preseason has gone extremely well, good base, progressing well, nice and healthy, hits the first classic of the season, breaks his arm, and then I'm expecting Matt to ring up and say, I've broken my arm, the classics are done, let's um, yeah, re- rethink things and come back for the second part of the season. But then I get this uh, phone call from, from Matt and he says to me, I'm on this indoor trainer and this indoor platform. I'm, I'm keeping training. How are we going to use it? And so this is six weeks out from Roubaix. So now we have a rider that's motivated, uh, wants to train indoors. So how are we going to use this? What we did there was for, for just under six weeks, Matt did double, double session days, uh, one and a half hours each session. So he's getting about 20 hours a week indoors. And then as we all know, the story is he comes out, has the right of his life, wins Roubaix, but it all comes down to from the work that Matt did indoors, from the heat adaptation, his blood plasma and VO2 was at the highest level he'd ever experienced. And as we know in the race in 2016, he was that aerobically efficient throughout the race that in the the final 10Ks he could overcome any attacks, he could instigate the attacks himself and obviously produce the sprint of his life because he's preserved glycogen from being so aerobically efficient. So from that point, we've thought, okay, something's really happened here that has caused a huge benefit. Someone like Matt Heyman has had uh, the experience of the best coaches in the world through Team Sky, Mitchelton Scott. Uh, he's experienced every training uh, phase or, or fad that's come and gone. He's done everything. And all of a sudden, he's forced to ride 20 hours a week indoors for five weeks and he wins Roubaix. There's got to be something positive from that experience. So from that, we've started to put put in place what we've learnt from the Matt Hamney experience into our riders after that. And we know that the effects and the changes came from uh, the increased core body temperature indoors 
and we started putting these sort of um, ideas in place for our riders leading into some of their key races. And we came up with a bit of a system. Uh, as an example, uh, in Strada Bianchi, an Italian race in late March, um, sometimes the weather is quite bad there as well. So we had some of our riders performing indoor blocks of training of, of 10 days with the, the last session four days before a race like Strada Bianchi, one of the major classics of the season. And the guys have come out and had phenomenal rides, uh, some of the best performances. But interestingly, people think that when we train indoors, we're training um, to adapt to heat in, in a hot environment such as Hawaii or something like that. But there's also evidence, and you can argue both ways, that when you train indoors and you get the heat adaptation, you're also uh, more efficient at riding in cold weather as well. So in 2017, we had some of our riders training indoors leading into Strata Bianchi. The weather was terrible, cold, wet, freezing, and the guys came out and had a, an awesome race finishing uh, top five in, in the race there. And their comments were that, the cold didn't affect me as much as it normally does in that race today. And we know that comes from the indoor training as well. So in many ways, we were forced to uh, learn how to use indoor training. And since then, we've put it in place in, in many different ways, in many different um, yeah, possibilities of double-day sessions, indoor training camps, uh, leading into, into major races, leading into stage races. So even though the, the volume is reduced, the gains that we get from – increased blood plasma, increased VO2, increased efficiency, they far outweigh the, the decrease in volume that we experience. How much do you decrease volume when you switch to indoor uh, riding? And I assume that the two-a-day sessions is uh, one of the main reasons would be just because uh, you can't get the riders to, to stay engaged for six hours on, on the indoor trainer. Yeah, well, it opens up another opportunity there when you're doing two-a-day sessions – Sorry, my computer's just gone to sleep here. One second. Yeah. Yeah, so when we do uh, double day, double session days, uh, we get the benefit of the high intensity and the heat training indoors. We then also get the opportunity to put in place dietary manipulation techniques such as low carbs for the afternoon session. So things that we were putting in place, and this varied on day to day, as an example, uh, we might do a high intensity session in the morning uh fully fueled with carbs we would do a recover low after that session then in the afternoon the rider would go and do uh three or four hours out in the mountains um with low carbs uh for the endurance side of things and that was uh, a good way to implement heat and dietary manipulation in the one session but then on the reverse side we would do sometimes a double session day or ergo in the morning ergo in the afternoon but then from the ergo in the afternoon straight into a hot bath to continue that heat adaptation process and the increased blood plasma. And then this is where um, we have this fantastic product now, which I've just got my hands on recently, where we can measure core body temperature accurately by wearing a device uh, outside the is, body. Is that the, is that the Swiss uh, device? Yeah, the uh, um, core body temperature by GreenTeg. Uh, it's, it's an amazing device and uh, the information we're getting now, because up until this point, we're guessing. And I've had my riders, I've been at the camps with them, and we would do the afternoon ergo, then they get into the hot bath straight away and they finish the hot bath after 40 minutes or so. And then three hours later, they would still say, I feel like I'm cooking, I feel so hot still. And in many ways, we were just guessing, okay, how hot are they still? We really didn't know. But now we can measure that and now we know the effects of 
the heat in the bath, what temperature to go to, how long to go for, how long that effects last for. It's just answering so many questions and a whole other world of training implementation as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Going back to the heat adaptation with indoor training, do you think that you get those effects even when you're using a a good fan or do you turn the fans off or, or how do you implement that practically? Yeah, this has been the interesting thing. And I read an article just the other day and the title was Beat the Heat. And I read that and I thought it really should be Embrace the Heat. Like up to a certain point, we're going to get a benefit from it. Obviously, if you go too hot, um, there's the danger and also the decreased performance as well. But to get to that point where it's dangerous or decreased performance indoors, it's pretty hard to get to that point. So I really say embrace the heat. And since I uh, had my hands on this core body temperature device from GreenTeg, we've been experimenting with things like which uh, thermoregulation method is more effective uh, evaporation or convection and we've come up with um, models now of certain riders will ride without a fan relying on evaporation only until they get to a certain core body temperature so as an example some riders are getting to 38.3 and then turning the fan on because they get to the point where the sweat isn't drying on their skin so they're losing the effect of the evaporation and then from that point they're turning the fan on and then we're seeing the difference in skin temperature and core body temperature and it's just, it's like when you first got heart rate monitors, it's a whole nother level of, of training implementation and ideas to put forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask around, uh, so wait, coming back to one, one thing that we didn't quite cover yet was the, the volume difference. So, so you said that you do reduce volume a bit when implementing indoor, uh, training protocols. So, so how much roughly would, would that be that you reduce the volume? Uh, yeah, sorry about that. So as an example, leading into a Grand Tour, normally a GC rider is aiming to complete consecutive weeks of around 30 hours, now 28 to, to 33. And the gold standard for a GC rider in a Grand Tour that's aiming to you know, finish top 10, they should be able to complete about that 30 hours a week of high volume, low intensity aerobic work, um, two weeks of that. When we then come in closer to uh, the race period, we're reducing that volume with implementation of indoor training down to around 18 to 22 hours of training, including the indoor riding as well. So the volume can be decreased quite a bit and we're just getting more gains by placing the body under more stress and different stress as well in terms of the heat and also the dietary manipulation. And how much do you think is the, if you want to call it the minimal effective dose of indoor training to get these adaptations you're seeking? And uh, and where do you usually place, like how much indoor training would you uh, prescribe on, on average? Uh, so for a professional rider, obviously we need periods of big volume uh, and we're doing these indoor blocks very specifically leading into key races. So leading into a key race, they've done their volume, um, they've had a good rest period, and they're looking for the intensity as well. So we normally put in put them in place in blocks of, of 10 days of indoor train, training being used. Uh, in that 10-day block, we implement the double-day sessions, the hot bars as well. We normally have one day off of each method during that 10 days. So there might be uh, one day off of a hot bath and one day with no ergo as well, just to give them uh, a mental break from it as well. But it's been interesting to see the uptake on these methods and to the point where uh, when I first 
I went to Andorra with a rider and, and turned up with the indoor trainer. Uh, and this is a person that just basically hated indoor riding. Uh, didn't want to, didn't want a bar of it, didn't want to, didn't want to even try it. But I got them through their first experience of, of indoor training while we we're in Andorra at altitude, beautiful riding. We did the indoor ergo, the hot bars. They then went to their professional team and before each grand tour, they always uh, take blood values to monitor the rider's health and so on. And his team came back and said to him that his blood values were the best they'd ever seen and they'd been with the same team for five or six years. So just that last block that we did at altitude with the heat, with the dietary um, manipulation and the baths, it just really um, gave the, the rider a, a massive uh, boost in performance. They went, they went on to have a, a magnificent uh, performance in the, in the Vuelta, the Tour of Spain. And from that point on, this rider now comes back to me and says, okay, it's time to put in place another indoor block and, and they ask for it now. So that's an example of once you've experienced uh, the benefits of it and the gains, people become believers in it um, and they want to implement it themselves when they can. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Uh, now, when it comes to training indoors, there, depending on the rider, you might have a smaller or a bigger difference in, in power production, for example, but also you have other things that you need to consider, like different hydration needs, uh, perhaps. So can we go into some of these considerations that need to be put in place when, when implementing indoor training? Yeah, in terms of the difference in power that is produced, riders are producing more power indoors, um, whether that's through just the ability to produce a long one-hour effort. As an example, during lockdown with all the racing that was happening with, with professional riders on different platforms, a lot of the riders were coming out and doing their, their best one-hour power all the time. Um, that comes down to obviously uh, the environment, the, the power meter that's being used. Obviously, there's some discrepancies there as well. But all in all, we're seeing huge or a, a positive trend in power produced indoors. Um, I think it's because there's the ability to have just a, a constant um, torque on the cranks, a constant incline, and they can do some of their best power. Also, when you're racing your peers indoors and everyone's watching it, you're, you're more motivated as well. So in terms of the power that's produced, over the course of one hour, you're not going to see huge differences. Um, it, it should be pretty similar to what you do outdoors unless when you get down to uh, under 20 seconds where the sprinting ability isn't quite the same because you can't throw the bike around as much so someone like caleb's not going to get his best five second power indoors that needs to be done outdoors but for the longer efforts um definitely comparable and really no decline in performance as well over the, the course of one hour but getting back to uh hydration it's an opportunity to really uh measure the effects of of your effort and the, the environment um and how it affects your sweat rates. You can do so many of your own little science experiments um, when you're riding indoors, just measuring how much fluid you take on, weighing before and after, and then applying that to outdoors as well. So it really it allows everyone to become a sports scientist and measure things accurately. Yeah. Uh, what you say about power production is very interesting. I've heard as much about the pro cyclist, but it does go against what I see in quite a lot of amateur athletes, triathletes and cyclists in that many of them, uh, when they start indoor training, uh, they actually see a significant decrease in power output. And perhaps this has to do 
with just first getting familiar with training indoors and, and i think that there is definitely uh, you adapt to it and then you are producing just as much power indoors as outdoors and you say perhaps even more but uh, but you say it doesn't sound like you see that that need for an adaptation period with the professional riders i'm wondering if you have any opinion on why uh, amateurs might see at first a huge discrepancy in terms of smaller power production indoors versus outdoors I think it comes down to uh, RPE, rate of perceived exertion, where also comes down to the method they're using to complete the workout. So this is the conversation about to use erg mode or not erg mode. So uh, obviously erg mode is when the, the trainer sets the power and you just pedal and, and reach it regardless, or without erg mode, you've got to find the power yourself. So I guess perhaps when an amateur rider is, is doing workouts indoors and, and the target power is there, and they're using erg mode, maybe uh, they're not riding at the cadence they're more familiar with or they're not used to that sensation of, of how hot they th- think they are, uh, which raises the point that generally indoors people think they're very hot. They're actually not that hot as, as what they think they are. So this is where um, the green tag device from core body temperature uh, is, is really interesting to put in place as well. But I would then say that when we – do intervals, um, free ride intervals where there's no power ceiling. Um, this is where riders are then going to be able to achieve similar power to what they produce outdoors. So when you're doing intervals, because it's more structured, more constraints on how you produce that, they might not feel they're getting the same power for the same effort. But when they do free ride intervals uh, with no ceiling and, and no restrictions on, on cadence or how you produce that power, they're more likely to be able to achieve the same power as what they do outdoors. Yeah, I would just from personal experience agree with with that in erg mode. Uh, perhaps you, it's good in a way if you're doing like, for example, longer tempo intervals because you can just stay very constant and not have fluctuations if that's the goal of the session. So you're kind of very efficient in the way that you're not wasting any energy to to power spikes and so on. But but I do think when you're doing, especially when you're doing high intensity intervals, uh, erg mode can sort of like it feels like our RPE goes up because it feels like it's pushing against you much more than when you're just in the in the normal resistance mode or free ride mode. So uh, so for that type of riding and for whenever you want to like hit a KOM or something like that, uh, then uh, I I agree that probably to get the most power out of yourself, you need to be in that free ride or yeah. or resistance mode. We could probably do a whole podcast on to erg mode or not to erg mode. People are very adamant that their way is, is right. But um, I guess in my example with my riders, I let them choose themselves. Um, look, the, the outcome is, is very similar. But if the rider is more motivated to train indoors with their preferred method, let them go for it. Yeah, that, that makes, makes, makes a lot of sense. And... Uh, when when we're talking about the difference between uh between amateurs or if we no sorry let me rephrase the questions uh how might the training differ for an amateur cyclist or triathlete that are training indoors uh through the winter in a cold weather climate compared to uh to a triathlete or cyclist amateur triathlete or cyclist who can ride outdoors year round so if you're stuck you're you have to do all of your training indoors essentially because of the because of the climate Mm. Uh, would you say that there is a difference like is there would you still have them do if they're motivated enough to do that to do long rides indoors or or are there any differences that you would put in place for these amateurs yeah there is and this is where 
there's the the latest methods of this is all about mitochondria and how to per, how to uh, increase the efficiency and the number of mitochondria uh, in our in our bodies. So if we have the option to ride outdoors, we need to go easier and longer. When we ride indoors, we're not going to do four or five hours indoors regularly. We might do a one-off ride like that occasionally. But to get a similar kind of uh, response to increase mitochondria, if we're just doing short surges where your breathing rate increases, so if you're doing uh, a nice zone two ride and every five minutes you're just doing a little acceleration to the point that you feel your breathing rate increase suddenly and then back it off and recover from there, just that slight increase in intensity without going overboard is enough to stimulate a response to increase mitochondria. And that's the kind of thing that we can do indoors during the winter as well. So for triathletes that have to spend their winters indoors, it doesn't just mean hours and hours of zone two. You can do um, some accelerations, mix it up a bit, six seconds, 20 seconds, good recovery in between, and and you get a very similar response to riding outdoors for the longer uh, steady state efforts. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. Uh, do you, off the top of your head, know uh, who might have done research studies on this that uh, I can look up and link to in the show notes? Or uh, off the top off the top of my head, I don't. But uh, there was a paper a long time ago, and uh, it spoke about the sodium potassium pump and, and how that regulates itself and uh, and how efficient it can be in in terms of recharging the, the muscle cells and. When we look at cyclists, um, and when they when they race, uh, you know, a four or five day tour, and the conversation was, are they getting the increased uh, benefit from the volume, or is it from the intensity? And what they found is that it really is from when they're riding in the bunch. There's lots of freewheeling and lots of short accelerations without going into any sort of oxygen debt, and that's where they're getting the benefit from in terms of their fitness and their endurance. So we're we're applying the same principles to indoor training as well. Yeah. All right. And back to the question around or the topic around long rides on the indoor trainer. Uh, I don't know if this is something that is more of a triathlete thing, but uh, I've had the fortune of, well, actually, I can probably count myself among these athletes, but I've also coached several triathletes that have no problem whatsoever with doing a four or five hour ride every single week of the year on the indoor trainer. So, in your opinion, if you have the mental fortitude and the motivation to do that, is, is it still useful to do to do that sort of just long, steady ride indoors? Or, or would you still, I mean, I think from a coaching perspective, I still try to make a five-hour ride like that have something in it to make it a bit more engaging and varied. It's not just put on an erg mode and go at five hours or one single power. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what is your general opinion around doing really long rides on the indoor trainer if the, if the motivation is there to do so? Oh, if the motivation's there, go for it, do it. Um, yeah, and and to put this politely, triathletes are, I guess, I don't want to say more mentally stronger, but yeah, there seems to be the culture of if if, if the ride uh, requires five hours, I'm going to do it indoors or outdoors. Whereas road cyclists are more likely to say two hours is enough for me. That's all I'm going to do indoors. So I think it's just a different culture between the two fraternities there, but. Um, Hats off to all the triathletes doing five hours indoors. I think it's an amazing feat. But this is where with the indoor platforms we have available now, it can be engaging and fun and you can do social rides and there's all these challenges of 200-kilometre rides or, you know, there's lots of bunch rides happening as well. So, 
yeah, there certainly is the environment there to do it now. I would imagine that before uh, this world of indoor training, five hours on the ergo uh, would be completed by very few triathletes or cyclists, but with uh, the implementation of these indoor platforms, the, the environment is there now to achieve this. Mm, yeah. And uh, let's talk a bit about that, those bunch rides, races, and so on. What What's your general opinion around how that can be implemented in a training program when when the main goal isn't the indoor racing but it's either uh, outdoor road races uh, or triathlons or uh, whatever the athlete is training for but but can we still implement effectively things like yeah things like races and uh, maybe group workouts and, and stuff like that yeah look the races provide the ideal opportunity for unstructured high intensity so the rider is motivated to, to push hard Generally, these rides or these races indoors are quite steady state. There's not a whole lot of attacking. They're more of a race of attrition, which uh, would probably suit triathletes. Um, but either way, it's just a way to motivate the athlete to um, train without a ceiling of power and really produce their best performance. They're engaging. They're fun. I do read and, and hear comments about uh, racing indoors is detrimental to performance. I don't believe that for a second. If you put it in place in the correct training format or the correct um, uh, timing, um, there's there's gains to be made there. Obviously, if you're racing five days a week, it's going to be a, a decreased performance there. But if you put uh, racing indoors into the right um, training plan in the right place, uh, there's definitely gains to be made there. And this this sort of comes back to the conversation too about how much recovery is required from indoor training. Most people are, are, are training for one-hour sessions at a time and during the week they might do four or five indoor workouts of one hour. It's, it's, I think it's okay to do one hour of, of high intensity four or five times a week. You know? With an hour, um, we're not going to see huge amounts of fatigue but then following on from that, this also leads into the conversation about the metrics that we have to, to monitor fatigue that are out there um, haven't really accounted for um, this volume of indoor training. So, for example, during lockdown, the riders that were doing um, you know, double sessions indoors, they're doing 14, 15 hours, hours a week indoors, we were getting nowhere near the same levels of fatigue, even though the intensity was higher as they would if they were training outdoors. So I think this is kind of… Um, in, terms of in terms of metrics or in terms of actual fatigue? In terms of metrics. Fatigue. So I think mm. what we've been forced to look at is how reliable are our metrics when someone is training indoors with high volume uh i would say that we're not quite keeping up with with um what the athlete is feeling or seeing and, and this comes from experience with all the athletes that were you know training in lockdown double sessions high intensity and and from from my side normally as a coach you want to see in the data the same thing that the rider is feeling and that's normally the case but during lockdown I was seeing the rider was fresh, ready to go again, um, but in terms of the way they were feeling, they weren't they weren't feeling quite the same as well. So it sort of highlighted a discrepancy there. Yeah, and were you looking at things like the the PMC there mostly, or what other metrics might you have been using to assess that? Yeah, look, just just our standard performance management chart metrics there. Um, and look, I guess uh, to give examples for our, our road riders, we'd normally push them down to uh, 
minus uh, 60 or 70 at, at a very extreme point. Um, and we would achieve that with, with high volume outdoors. Um, but with the same volume indoors and more intensity, uh, they're only going down to minus 20, minus 30. Um, but they were feeling the fatigue was much more than what the, the metrics were showing there as well. So for me, it's something um, for us to investigate and look a bit further at. Uh, it could be because um, the effort uh, is more stochastic perhaps and the way they're pedaling indoors. Uh, and we know that you know, these metrics don't really count for efforts under 30 seconds. Maybe it's missing that point of it, lots of that. But um, I just think it's something that needs further investigation. Yeah. So I'm going to put you here a bit on the spot here. Uh, if you were to design a template uh, winter training week for an amateur cyclist, so we're talking about cycling here now, not triathlon, and uh, they have 60 to 90 minutes on, on weekdays to train, and then they have, uh, let's say, up to up to three hours uh, on the weekends, but they're basically stuck on the trainer because they live in uh, somewhere cold and uh, mm-hmm. snowy and dark. Uh, what might a template week look like in bo- broad strokes? Okay, and, it can include, and, it, and, it, and it can include races and, and uh, bunch workouts and stuff like that as well. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Look, obviously, very broad because we need to look at the timing of the, the the training and the season and so on. But this is where if the rider is in some ways forced to train indoors, but I would hope they'll be, they would embrace it and look forward to it eventually. Um, definitely use the the motivation of socialising indoors. So include some structure. So I would include perhaps two specific um, sessions that target the changes we're looking for in the athlete. And then uh, perhaps a race for that unstructured high intensity and some sort of social group ride throughout the week. And then the weekend, with, with our amateur riders, we know that if they can just – normally they're training between, let's say, seven to ten hours a week. That gives them an hour a day and a long one on the weekend. If they can train with intensity during the week uh, with some structure and some recovery – and then if they can go longer on the weekend, that long ride really produces um, some big gains for the rider. So, yeah, I guess in, in broad strokes, uh, embrace the ability to engage with others indoors with the racing and, and the social rides. Do some specific workouts for the needs of the of the athlete on the weekend, long and slow. Mm. In, in terms of training, that's distribution. Uh, I'm getting a picture here that you're not really into things like polarized training that is kind of trendy these days but it sounds like you're okay with doing much more intensity than that would uh, than that sort of training intensity distribution would would have an athlete do is that correct um perhaps not so i've thought about this question before um what i found that if i look at the the riders training i've set them during the year at some points, they're doing your traditional periodization training, and at some points, they are doing uh, a polarized type training as well. So leading into some events, they might implement that sort of method as well. So I've never really used the one method throughout the entire season. It really depends on the timing of the of the season and the races and what those needs are. Um, yeah, like in some ways, once the riders fit, we sort of put in place this, this block training where you know, we're doing two weeks of uh, maintenance aerobic work one week of high intensity and then uh, another two weeks of of low intensity endurance then we're into a racing period again so what i find is that leading up to uh, the first racing block of the season we put in place the more traditional periodization training 
And then once the racing season starts, we're really adapting quite quickly to the, the periods of training we have available. Sometimes it's uh, a six-week mid-season build or sometimes it's a two-week break that the, the rider has in between um, some key racing periods. So for the professional riders, it changes quite a bit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So looking at the if – you, if you look at the longer-term view, I guess, then uh, – then, then, then it can maybe add, add up a bit more because you have those weeks with, uh, with lower intensity training as well. But, but yeah, not. I guess the main point there is that it changes based on the the current needs, and it's not yeah not a fixed philosophy, mm-hmm. which which makes total sense. Yeah. Um, one more thing around indoor training: if you have uh, somebody either who just needs to do some time trial training because they're that's their specialty in the on the world tour or just an, an amateur uh, hypothetically that's focusing on time trials or triathlete how much would you think that they would need to train in a tt position indoors again assuming that they live in a cold climate where where they basically do all of their training as indoors through the winter period and or would it be okay to to mix in sitting up in some workouts what what would you have as general recommendations around that Look, generally, I would mix it up, uh, but the best example I can give here is with Alex Dowsett training for the world's time trial last year. He was in Andorra, I was in Australia, and we were using things uh, like best bike split, obviously um, training peaks and and um, indoor training as well to replicate the demands of the race. And what we put in place there was for his efforts for his training that was simulating the demands of the race. So we would not always train with the same intensity, but we had a workout that was comprised of, it was 48 intervals over an hour and five minutes, which was what the race was going to be. We wanted him just to get used to the rhythm of the race. So an opening pretty much flat 15 minute effort, then the rolling hills after that and the steep climbs at the end. So we wanted him to uh, attune himself to the rhythm of that race um, with lower intensity so he could repeat it. For those efforts, we were using the time trial position, but whereas for other sessions, we were looking just for the gains in, in heat adaptation and so on, he would train on his normal bike. So we were mixing it up between his road bike and his time trial bike indoors. Yeah, and and how often would you have that key session? Like, you know, or in, so basically in, in, in one training week, how often would he be training on the, on the TT bike? Uh, at that point, leading up to the Worlds, we had a, a really specific uh, five-week block of training and we were on the, the time trial bike on the ergo two or three times a week at that point. But mid-season, it would just be uh, once a week at the most. All right. Uh, do you have any other cool entertainment tips for indoor training? Like, for example, do you have athletes that in addition to or in or instead of using some platforms uh, just have found it music or watching some youtube channels uh, gcn or whatever uh, anything else that uh, that from your coaching experience seems to be working well to keep indoor training engaging and entertaining uh i've got a good example for this so during lockdown this season uh one of my riders from katusha philly smith south african he rode a thousand kilometers continuously indoors it took him 37 hours and I asked him after he'd done it, I said, what did you watch while you were riding that distance? Now, how did you entertain yourself? And he said, I was watching my speed for 37 hours. So the point there is that <laughs> everyone's different and Willie's very different. But 
it really is an individual thing. So I guess if the session is more uh, intricate, entertaining, the rider needs to focus on that, and that's normally enough to entertain them. For the, the longer endurance free ride things, uh, it really is up to the athlete's choice, documentaries, music, those sort of things as well. But that kind of leads on to a point about indoor training, which we're seeing um, happening in this landscape now in terms of uh, the training plans indoors. There's this real conundrum of how do we entertain the rider but also train them effectively. So if you're training indoors four or five times a week, you want to be entertained. But whereas as coaches we know that doing two 30-minute tempo efforts is good training and and, um, very efficient, to do that indoors is not much fun. So what we're seeing now is that uh, people are becoming – very uh, adventurous in their in their interval setups and and perhaps are missing the mark of training physiology now and it's more entertainment. So I guess a bit of a, a tip or advice here is that if you look at uh, a training workout, the one that is more colourful has the most um, chart intervals up and down is not always the best training um look for the science behind it and ask your coach why you're doing this session what's what's the goal of it uh, because there is a a blur between entertainment and good training now as well well that is an uh, an amazing point kevin i couldn't agree more and that's again where i think that well it's in some ways i'm lucky coaching triathletes because uh, they have no problem doing just 20s or 30s of just mm-hmm. one steady tempo power so so really personally i don't have to worry about that at all the the session can be plain and boring and they get it done mm. uh, but yeah i totally agree like you see some you see plans and platforms that have workouts that are that look like a you know a physics formula or something like that and yeah. and uh, yeah it, it it is very easy to miss the mark when you when you try to add too much entertainment to it mm. so yeah um uh, all right, so I have some other questions uh, unrelated to or partially related to indoor training, but, well, I guess more general training and coaching that I'm wondering if you can give some tips and insights on. And the first one would be how you're using and combining power, heart rate, and RPE as measures of intensity in training and coaching. Yeah, um, I'm of the belief that the more we measure, the less we guess. And as I mentioned, we have this new core body temperature device. We can measure another metric now. We're measuring HRV as well as heart rate and power and RPE. Um, I would never make a decision based on just one metric. So I'm always looking at the trends of all these metrics. And if they're all heading in the same direction, we can make a, a better informed decision. Um, but if uh, something is, is going against the grain, we can probably discount that as well. So I really am a believer in asking the athlete about RPE. Um, look, I use training peaks for my communication with athletes and I always look for the two markers from their, their session, um, their RPE score and the little emoji face on how they felt. Those two things tell the coach, uh, you know, a whole story almost. So um, what I was expecting the athlete to feel should line up with what they um, rip supply in, in that and in that training peaks um, metric there. Um, but look, yeah, definitely with indoor training specifically, um, looking at heart rate drift for steady state efforts, uh, looking at the effect of heat on that as well now. Where we're seeing how obviously um, the point here is that when riders 
feel they're, they're hot and cooking, quite often they aren't. And so um, the heart rate drift isn't as much. So it's a good way to measure heart rate drift against body temperature to body temperature now as well. That's something we're looking at there. Um, but obviously always, obviously power is, is probably you know, the most important metric that we look at. Power is what you prescribe sessions by, I assume. Yeah, again, um, it's what I look for. Uh, but again, it's about engaging the athlete. So I'm looking for power. And this is where, as coaches, we need to get the, the athletes trust and get them on board. Um, I had a young Australian that went to Europe to, to race professionally. I would set intervals based on power. Um, he just just couldn't get his head around it, um, despised it, didn't like it. And so we, we went back to basically simply go hard, harder, hardest. But if you set an athlete three by 10 minutes and you say, go as hard as you can, they can pretty much regulate their effort to what you're expecting from the power at the same time as well. So it sort of works both ways there. Um, I'm always looking mm -hmm. at the power, but we don't always prescribe it to the athlete is probably the point there. All right. And uh, next topic, high-intensity interval training. Yeah, look, I, I love it. I'm a fan of it. Um, but depending on the athlete, uh, and this brings us into the conversation of what uh, Sebastian Weber is now doing with Insight, and this is a whole new language of training and a whole new world of um, how we prescribe training to athletes. Um, what we're seeing uh, with these metrics now of VLA max and, and VO2 and, and threshold power and so on is how the rider responds to those and what type of rider they are as well. So high-intensity training is great for the right rider. Uh, example I can give here is that um, for someone like Caleb Ewan, um, obviously he responds, he produces lots of lactate from his short sprints, which is what he wants. But then we sometimes see that Uh, if a rider doesn't have a very high uh, five-second power, the coach will prescribe them massive amounts of sprint work, but the athlete's not going to respond to that because they don't produce lactate. So using the inside metrics and, and um, validation there, we can now see what sort of training the rider should put in place to be able to increase uh, the lactate they produce to produce that power there as well. So this is leading on to a whole other conversation here about um, – how we're moving away from just talking about FTP and now we really are training for the demands uh, of the event and prescribing the, the most effective training to that rider as well. So as we know, uh, for our, our GC riders, they want to have a, a lower VLA max um, and our sprinter wants to have a high VLA max and what training is going to allow them to achieve that. And, and this is um, a conversation far beyond FTP now. Yeah, uh, Sebastian has been on the podcast uh, several times before, but just from your perspective, uh, if we take those two examples, first the GC rider and uh, working towards lowering a VLA max, what would some key training interventions be? And it can be other interventions, nutrition perhaps even, uh, be to do that. Yeah, well, this is where, um, look, the, the tempo type work and, and the low fuel is going to decrease the VLA max. So for our triathlete that needs to go long and steady for a long period of time, um, they're going to be uh, performing those sort of that tempo work and maybe lowering the carb intake as well. Um, just a quick note on carb intake. We now know that no carbs is not the way to go. We want some carbs in there. Otherwise, we're going to do probably more damage than good. Uh, but in terms of someone like my Caleb Ewan sprinter, if he does a lot of tempo work, particularly uh, when he's forced to in racing, 
that affects his sprint in a negative way. So we avoid that as much as we can. We're, we're going either side of that. We're going very easy and long, or we're going super high lactate and, and very high power stuff there as well. So you mentioned there uh, a, li- a little bit before that if somebody, if you have an athlete that basically the coach wants to increase their five second power, but they're giving them a lot of of high power work, but they don't respond to that because they don't produce lactate. What would the solution be to that like how like is it just like going short enough and hard enough or is there more of a 30 second repeats that produce more lactate would you or would you have them do some gym work perhaps to that is designed to be very glycolytic yeah now you, you hit the nail on the head there so for these riders they haven't got the fast rich fibers to produce that power and they don't produce that lactate so they need to do lots of repetitive 20 second, 30 second efforts with short recovery to keep building that lactate up higher and higher and higher on each effort there. Um, if they do gym work, they probably aren't going to uh, respond as well as someone with fast rich fibers. So it really is about knowing what type of athlete that you have in your hands there and how they're going to respond to producing lactate. So as an example, someone like Michael Sprinter or Marcel Kittle, in 20 seconds, they're going to produce 12 to 17 millimoles of lactate. But whereas someone with uh, a low amount of fast rich fibers, they're going to produce six or seven. So they need to keep producing uh, that extended 20 or 30 second effort repeatedly with short recovery period to keep building the lactate levels up. And from that, they're going to increase their, their um, anaerobic ability there. So um, I guess for the, the, not the slower the athlete, but the, the um, lower fast rich uh, fiber athletes, they need to produce a, a bit longer effort with a, a short recovery and repeat that many times to increase the lactate levels there. Mm. Do you have any other uh, tips around, like if you have an athlete that is very slow twitch versus fast twitch or vice versa, other differences to consider, for example, differences in recovery times, uh, maybe needs for different tapering protocols and anything there you want to mention regarding those two different uh, phenotypes? Yeah, well, I guess I'm always looking at the example of the, the pure sprinter and we're talking uh, our top five sprinters in the world like our Marcells and our Calebs and, and how they train. And look, I'm I'm guilty of uh, six, seven years ago um, having these guys produce long, what I thought was high crank talk efforts at the time for 15, 20 minutes at a time and, um, yeah, completely the wrong thing to do. Um, and we know now with these new... Uh, measurements we know the effects of that training and it's thanks to things like um inside and the ability to measure vla max we can see the detrimental effect that that has um so in terms of our sprinters when we produce um our strength endurance days it really is um very high power for a short amount of time we're just aiming to recruit the maximal amount of fast pitch fibers as we can in a short period of time so we're doing 30 seconds, 45 seconds at extremely high power and then good recovery after that. Whereas for uh, our, our time trialers, our triathletes, to train those fast twitch fibers, they want to produce high crank torque for long periods of time. Like we're really talking 40 minutes if you can, whether it be on the ergo indoors or a long climb. That way you're going to fatigue the muscles to a point where they're going to respond and, and, and adapt. Mm, yeah for uh yeah for for those guys for the gc guys you want to make sure that 
uh, as many of the fast twitch fibers as possible or have as good endurance as possible whereas for the sprinters you just want to make sure that you keep having a maximum available pool of muscle fibers by by actually recruiting them in the first place and that's why you have like a really really high power but but only for short periods of time is that correct yeah definitely absolutely right um so threshold training and uh, maybe also uh, tempo training you have mentioned some of the things already so we don't need to go into depth here but well maybe just specifically around training right around threshold or ftp uh, do you have any uh, specific opinions around that uh again thanks to inside we can now measure the effects of that um and to use uh, our sprinter as an example again we we avoid that because to increase their sprint ability we want to decrease their threshold so i guess we do monitor it but we don't train that system so we know to avoid it um and again this is where ftp we're really moving away from um that as being a focus of, of our training and, and our riders um look even Obviously, obviously, for someone like our Alex Dowsett, um, you know, our, a world-class time trial, our record holder, it's crucial to them. But for the extreme of our GC guy to our sprinter to our classics rider, FTP plays a part in their performance. Whether you're training to increase it or decrease it, that's what we're looking at now, and we can measure that accurately now thanks to Inside. But training there for somebody like... Uh, Alex Dowsett or somebody, a GC guy, is that beneficial or is it more beneficial in your opinion to do, to focus more on either doing, you know, endurance work or tempo work or going the other end and doing some high intensity work? Uh, okay. Yeah. Great. So it really is all about, uh, that lactate level there. So for someone like our, our, um, our time trial rider, um, who's training for, you know, an hour, our time trial. What we do there is we do a big preload effort of between three and five minutes, well above threshold, to build up lactate, and then we have a short recovery of one or two minutes, and then we're shuttling the lactate up or down. So that way we get to keep the athlete at a high level of lactate for a longer period without the, the strain and stress of a continuous um, effort where lactate is gradually going up and up and up and performance decreases. So in training, it's about training the body to adapt to utilizing that lactate is, that is produced at that time trial level and we do that by building it up first at, at a high level and then we can go above and below it um, for a longer period of time but this is also where it depends on the athlete and which method you're going to use so that's for for a gc guy i'd be putting in place or a triathlete perhaps um, the method of the big effort first or three to five minutes of a vega two effort uh, think of it that way and then shuttling above and below our threshold uh, on two-minute blocks after that. But whereas someone like a sprinter who might be doing um, some shorter threshold work, they wouldn't do the preload session, the preload effort, because it builds up too much lactate, and that's detrimental to performance. So it really is look about looking at lactate levels there and how to best utilize that. Mm. And, and when you have that shuttling period after the first preload, then uh, the – the over-unders, if we want, if we call them that, the unders there would be quite significantly below threshold, I assume, and then the overs would be a bit above, uh, like, I don't know, maybe 105, 110% going down to 80% or, or something to that effect. Or Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The recovery is very easy and, and the, the on interval is yeah, 105, 106%. But again, getting back to um, what we can measure in 
this uh, inside method, uh, we can measure how much lactate will accumulate in the athlete uh, for a certain power for a certain duration, and this way everything is very accurate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's also a way that I do over-unders. But I think this is a, a very common misconception around over-unders. You see a lot of programs that do over-unders where the unders are at 95%, but uh, mm. but actually they're, you're, you're not as you don't have as much capability of, of actually metabolizing that, that lactate. So yeah, it was good too. Yeah, I agree. Because if they're doing that, then the lactate's not going to uh, clear as much uh, and the lactate's going to keep building up higher and higher. So yeah. you know, it really is all about keeping that lactate level around you know, four to six millimoles uh, for the longest yeah. period of time that you can. And you're right. I should have said clearing lactate and not metabolizing because you're still metabolizing as much or more lactate at that level. But yeah, uh, good. And uh, one more point here, which you already mentioned a bit, the nutritional interventions. You had the double days with uh, the second one in a low glycogen state. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on that? So when you do you do that first high-intensity workout in the morning and then you have a you don't have a lot of carbs and you go out and do a second workout and endurance ride in the mountains perhaps three hours i think you mentioned uh, do you do that completely w- without energy or do you take on some energy during during that ride no so we take on some energy so again i'm a i'm a big fan of double day sessions um not all season long just coming into key racing periods a good block of double day sessions um has a, a very good effect for the athlete uh and one of the methods that we've mentioned here is the high intensity ergo in the morning so the rider will wake up and they'll have a, a good car breakfast. They'll do their high-intensity ergo session of an hour, hour 20 thereabouts. Uh, after that session, they will have no carbs, but they'll take um, calories on board, uh, proteins and fats. And then uh, at lunch, again, they'll avoid carbohydrates, just have proteins and fats. Then for the afternoon endurance session, they're uh, in a depleted carb state, particularly intramuscular-wise. And then out on the road, they won't go no carbs, but they'll take on probably 10 to 20 grams of carbs per hour for a a three or four hour ride. So this is a conversation in itself about carb intake and and going training low and so on. But we've found that um, for the rider to to stay healthy and adapt to the the, the stress as well, um, taking a minimal amount of carbs on board um, just avoids any uh, detrimental performance or detrimental uh, effect of the training so that's, that's one way um, and with carb visualization you really only do it once or twice at the most uh, in a week if people are doing it day in and day out this becomes too much and uh, fatigue sets in um, yeah, yeah, the response is it's just not possible to train carbs carbs are good only carbs to perform uh, but we've learned to get once or twice in the week is one of the most effective ways. The other way we look at carbon isolation is if the rider, the rider is doing a current state on day one, day one they might, they might do a one-tenth of a session session with our guys. Now, four or five mountains have been doing a few sets of two work. Late in the session, they'll stop taking the carbs carbs on board. And then for dinner, dinner again, they'll go, go, carbs, 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 fats and fats and as well. And then the most important session, session, the next day session, session, they'll wake up, wake up again, again, a minimal amount of carbs, 10 to 20 grams in a meal there. Then they'll go out and do some longer, steady state work, 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 blocks of 10 to 15 minutes in a low carb state. 
and then maybe they also try and try and kind of refuel the automatic valves as well. So that's one way to look at about a two-day period. Yeah, and uh, one other question is: uh, so you mentioned that you do this in specific blocks. So, in in a block such such as that, how many times would you do low carb training, and and how many of these blocks might you have in a year? So, just to get a a perspective of the overall season, how much low carb training are you actually doing? For example, is it twice a week for um, like five to seven? two or three week blocks throughout the season or is it four times per week for uh, more blocks than that if you if you understand the, the perspective that i'm coming from here yeah, with the question. yeah look i guess again for my professional riders uh in the early season in their base training that's when we do the most carb manipulation work there so in our eight week build up until two down under we'll probably do carb manipulation um twice a week for six weeks or seven weeks thereabouts and this is where the riders get their most gain in aerobic efficiency in uh, in their endurance capabilities, and it comes from that the carb manipulation there. Once they start racing, they need the carbs to perform and to recover as well, so we don't use it as much. We might use it again in a mid-season build up to a Grand Tour, but it probably really is only two big blocks of training where we're putting it in place twice a week. But once racing starts, we want to take the carbs on board. Right. Now, what are... Some, a few, uh, one to three common mistakes related to any aspect of endurance training that you see athletes doing regularly and uh, that you would advise our listeners to to avoid and, and how should they avoid these common mistakes? Um, I guess we probably just mentioned one then about doing too many train load days. Uh, they have become a bit of a, a fad. Obviously very effective used in, in the right place and the right timing. So just not day in and day out. One of the biggest ones I see amateur athletes putting in place is a set recovery day. Um, if they have good training history, good training data, and they can look at their metrics uh, with confidence, if a rider is putting in place a set training day when they don't need it, over the course of a season, they could be missing out on 20 days of training that could have been training uh, effectively and, and made a a gain in performance there. And so we're looking at almost a month of training they could miss uh, in a season. So I really uh, encourage riders to look at their their trends in data in terms of their fatigue and their, their TSB and, and those sort of metrics and just give themselves a target point of when they're going to back off training. And so if they can fit in uh, an extra session a week, there really is uh, some gains to be made there. So so using metrics and um, and a question about whether they should have a, a set uh, day off or not. Uh, I guess the other one there is really looking at your your blocks of racing and and uh, how long you want your your racing uh, your peak period to be. And this is where the difference between triathletes and and our, our our races road races is different. Where if you're training for one event. Uh, you can be a, a bit more haphazard with, with the volume as such. So what we find is that the bigger the volume the rider has, the more specifically you can target when they're going to be in their peak form. Um, but when they have a, a, a bit less, uh, it's, it's a bit harder to say that they're going to be uh, on peak form on this specific day. So really look at, at the volume you're putting in place and, and play around with that as well. All right. And uh, what are... 
a couple of things, one to three things, again, that you're currently really fascinated by learning more about or have started to to implement in uh, in the last, uh, however, uh, short time or long time frame you want to uh, you want to talk about. It's an open ended question, but yeah, some things that you are currently fascinated by and, and learning more about. You probably mentioned a couple of them already. Yeah, obviously, I've mentioned uh, the core body temperature measurement. Um, hugely fascinating and. And the things that we've known through reading all the scientific papers and the science, but now to be able to put it in place with the athlete and for them to experience it themselves, they just really buy into the whole methodology um, and they really take uh, all the advice on board. So th- for me, this is this is going to be like when we first got heart rate monitors back in the day and it was a whole new language of talking about heart rate zones and how it would respond and how it was delayed and so on. So this um, we're working towards... A, a protocol for um, heat training in terms of saying uh, when you first start training indoors or outdoors up to this temperature um, safe and, and no uh, benefit at this temperature there's now a benefit uh, to performance to be gained by training this temperature and at this temperature um, maybe you're starting to see a detrimental performance um, when, when riding and at a certain temperature above that obviously dangerous and back things off so we're trying to now put in place a, a testing protocol based on core body temperature, which is something which will be um, quite fascinating and I'm sure um, interesting to, to all our users there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's move into the rapid fire question. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports? Uh I mainly read scientific journals, so nothing uh, specifically in terms of books that I read. I'm just basically reading journals as much as I can. Perfect. And uh, what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? At the moment, it's the core body temperature device. And what's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Just supporting the athlete and knowing that you are lucky to work with them because they get one career and they've chosen you. So just really being along with them for the ride and just doing the best that you can. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. This has been great. Uh, before we go, uh, tell the listeners where they can follow you if you have social media, websites and other places that uh, that are good to check out. Yeah, uh, I guess on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Kev Poulton, P-O-U-L-T-O-N. Perfect. And uh, yeah, thank you once again for coming on and sharing all this knowledge. It's been really, really interesting to hear uh, what you're doing uh, with uh, the athletes. Great to get insights from the world tour level. So thank you very much uh, from me and on behalf of all our listeners. Great. Thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to a number of related topics and the pages, including Woosh, the indoor cycling platform that Kevin is working on, the core body temperature device, and so on. Also, one thing that I haven't really mentioned yet uh, is that now on scientifictriathlon.com, you can go to the podcast page and you can filter the episodes by category. So for example, you could go there 
and click the tab with cycling and you would see only episodes related to cycling and this episode would show up there for example and other cycling related episodes the same goes for swimming running and uh, racing a number of categories there so it's super easy to find episodes on topics that interest you and and just search really easily and see what might be of interest from the archives so go and check that out that's on the podcast page on scientifictriathlon.com on Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out. And uh, next Monday, I interview uh, Dr. Inigo San Milan. So that is a super exciting interview. To me, that's one of the best interviews, I think, from the entire year of 2020. Certainly one of the ones that, that I've been the most fascinated by and learned a lot from. So I am excited about it. I hope that you uh, that you join me for that discussion next week. And if you haven't heard already, if you're not listening to Q&As regularly, you might not have heard because this is the first Monday episode, but we are running a scientific triathlon training camp next April, the 10th to the 17th of April on Mallorca. There will be a super fun week with high quality training for all levels of athletes, whether you are a beginner or uh, a Kona podium finisher, there will be people there that you can train with there will be coaching uh, there for you to help you at your individual ability there will be lots of coaches there by the way so uh, that there's plenty for everybody to go around it's a great chance uh, of course to meet us scientific triathlon coaches in person and we are doing the camp in collaboration with next level camp which is frank jakobsen who you might have heard before on this podcast a danish coach but living in mallorca and uh, the reason for that is uh, well frank is a great guy but also they have super good handle on all the logistics side of things having had thousands of athletes through their organizing camps on mallorca so all the logistics will be taken care of they have the contacts to hotel to the hotel and to guides so we'll have plenty of guides to have different cycling groups for different speeds and so on it just makes it a super good training camp experience where really uh, you will be missing nothing uh, so go and check out all the information on our website or directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp and you can apply there there are still 10 15 places left so uh, apply quickly uh, they will sell out uh, that's for sure but there's still room to get in we also have covid19 refund policies in place so if it's not possible to travel due to covid19 uh, then you will be refunded uh, in one, at 100%. Do check the specifics of that, but they are very extensive, uh, very, very good policies. So it should be, our goal is that it should be a, a risk-free. Uh, you should be able to sign up without any risk of it being cancelled for COVID-19. But we are very confident that the camp will go ahead. So, so it shouldn't be, be an issue. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Remember that this week through uh, Cyber Monday, midnight next Monday, they are running a special campaign so you can get 20% off all electrolyte supplements with the code TTSFRIDAY20. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out all all their sales products. Start your Christmas shopping now and uh, you can find some uh, really big discounts there for sure. But if there's something that is less than 20%, then go through roca.com forward slash TTS and you can use the discount code there to get the usual 20% off those products. But keep in mind, that code cannot be combined with products already on sale. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.